The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center, sponsored by General Dynamics Information Technology. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of government contracting. Amtower Off Center with your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com at 1500 AM. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here with the renowned Larry Allen of Allen Federal, who, rumor has it, has just turned down the economic advisor position for the Trump administration. Larry, is that true? Mark, I can neither confirm nor deny my employment status with the Trump administration. Currently, I'm just happy being Allen Federal. There you go. All right. So, uh, um, I, I don't even know my bank statements, so they well, actually, that may qualify me. So uh, <laughs> I, I shouldn't have said that on air. Um, that's why I have accountants, right? Um, so uh, before we get started on on our overview of various aspects of uh, government contracts, I do want to point out, and Larry and I talked about this before, that uh, uh, Representative Ted Budd of North Carolina has requested and apparently submitted a bill requiring all agencies to submit a list of, um, what do they call them, Larry? Non-essential employees. Non-essential employees. Uh, uh, oh, here's a citizen request. I want a list of uh, non-essential <laughs> congressmen. And I, I think that... 535 people, last count. Uh, pretty close to it. Yeah. This is kind of a, one of those things that you would expect to see from a, a freshman congressman, Mark, which is exactly what the congressman is. Uh, with all respect to him, this is one of those things that you know may seem like it's a good idea, but uh, it's unwieldy, it's unworkable, uh, and tremendously expensive. It makes for a good headline with the people back home, but that's probably about the end of it. Yeah, uh, and uh, Bill getting out of committee is not not a big uh, big possibility either. No. Um, and what are you going to do with the damn list? You going to read it? <laughs> well, read the list, and you know, by the time you print the list out or get the list on whatever media, it's going to be outdated. You know, federal mark workforce is uh, highly changeable, Mark. Yeah, and it'd be something akin to the size of the old New York phone book. Do they still print those? Uh, I don't know that they do. I don't know that they do. But, you know, I'm sure the congressman's staff would like to know which one of them he thinks are essential. Uh, well, there you go. Um, he can browse the list himself, but I know which congresspeople aren't essential. And for me, that is all of them. <laughs> so <laughs> I shouldn't say that either. It probably qualifies me for another job in the Trump administration. Um, this is not political. I don't like either side. Um, uh, so, Larry... Um, you wrote a memo last week. I did. I wrote a memo to the people at GSA, Mark, and talking a little bit about how, in essence, GSA needs to follow its own direction. And we're talking here about contract consolidation and best-in-class contracts. Category management, as you know, Mark, and some of your listeners know, has been a big issue, not just in GSA, but in the Office of Management and Budget for the last, oh, several years, going back to the previous administration. And the whole idea is to identify best-in-class contracts, reduce duplication, have agencies use the ones that make the most sense. The memo I wrote to GSA was basically saying, you know, you really ought to follow your own direction because there are at least two instances here where GSA is maintaining contracts that have 
high access fees, the fees that user agencies pay to buy from these contracts, and really have small sales compared to their GSA schedule equivalents. And while GSA may point out that these contracts aren't nearly identical to each other, Mark, they are undeniably each in the best in the same class. And when you're talking about identifying best in class and reducing user fees and reducing overhead, uh, these are two areas that GSA could do just that uh, without and better manage its own portfolio. They could put resources to where those resources are better needed. And talking specifically about the Office Supply 4 contract, we're currently in the Office Supply 3, which is kind of a strategic sourcing category management. You mean the one where they trashed 500 uh, contractors on the old 75? Pretty much that yeah. one, yes. That's exactly right. Where, I remember that. <laughs> where uh, it's all about price and it's all about uh it's all about Staples and Office Depot. Well, what it's really, well, right. I mean, you talk about it. Really, it's a good point. I mean, GSA talks about, oh, we we got most of the companies on this contract are small businesses. Well, yeah, but they aren't yeah, making any money. Yes, they are, but they're not making any money. <laughs> the people who are making the money are the large two, one or two larger contractors that uh, are participating on this. So we're talking about OS four versus the GSA Schedule seventy five that GSA is finally now reopened. Uh, to new offers, so you can get some of those 500 back on. What's the fee on OS4? OS4 has a 2% access fee. Which 2%, is and 75 has? 0. 0.75. Okay. So, hmm. Right. And hmm. similarly, at the same time, GSA created a, about a year or two ago, uh, in tandem with the Office of Personnel Management, this human capital contract. The abbreviation is HCATS. And like the OS4 mark, HCATS has a 2% access fee. Well, surprisingly, it's not doing very much business when you compare it to the equivalent GSA schedule that also offers human capital solutions. 738X, yeah. Right, yeah. exactly, which also has a percent access fee. Right. And then if you look at the dollar amounts, customers, not just your clients and my clients, it's customers that are voting with their acquisition dollars using – both the 75 and 738X schedules to make the buys rather than using uh, these other acquisition vehicles. My advice to GSA is, look, particularly when you're talking about the services area of it, you have a tremendous amount of backlog in your professional services portfolio where companies, GSA is trying to, they're publicly saying, Mark, that they're trying to get down to an 18-month contract turnaround time for new offers. That's outrageously high. And there's simply no business justification to maintain a contract that doesn't drive sales, that you have ready alternatives for, and you can arguably use the people who are working on that contract to help augment your PSS program that does, what, $10 billion a year? Yeah. And could use the assets? So strictly from a business management standpoint... Uh, that's my recommendation to GSA, not well, just that they be following their own policy. Yeah, the HCATS program evolved out of that contract, and I forget the name of it, out of OPM that was awarded to, I think there was like 25 companies on it, and I have no idea what the fees were there, but they weren't 2%. They weren't 2%, and <clears throat> GSA wanted to uh, help OPM out, and OPM still wanted to maintain some ownership of human capital because, you know, they're the agency that's responsible. That does that, yeah. Right, exactly. 
but the the net net mark is that everybody needed their uh, their portion of the uh, the pot. So that's why we have a two percent access fee because both OPM and GSA need to be able to show that they're getting something for their effort. Uh, the result is uh, a contract access fee that not only is higher than the schedules, but is higher than I think any other IDIQ, indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity yeah, contract. Yeah, two percent is ridiculous. Well, because you're looking at NASA soup, which albeit is an IT contract, but which still, what's she down to about point two five now? Close to it. So, and you look at other contract access fees, and I think you'd be hard pressed to find a handful that even charge as much as one percent. Uh, almost all of them are some fraction of one percent. So to ha- come on with the full two percent access fee. Not surprising that you're pricing yourself out of the market. You know, it, it gets, uh, um, what did Alice say, curiouser and curiouser. <laughs> uh, well, Self-funding is one thing. But the bottom line is that if you just follow your own guidance, you can cancel these things and put your resources into programs that customers do care about and actually buy from. Yeah, yeah, agreed. So um, uh, Federal News Radio, uh, a couple days ago, Jason had this piece on uh, GSA hopes to have major policy updates to schedule ready for the fourth quarter buying season. Uh, Tell tell me uh, what this means to, to vendors and to buyers. So at the outset, Mark, let's praise GSA for actually coming up with the order level materials acquisition clause, contract Mm. clause. That's really what we're talking about here with this story. Right. GSA has, oh, for eight or nine years now, been trying to find a way to deal with other direct costs on the GSA schedules program to make the schedules more competitive with other commercial item indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contracts that have better capability to handle non-specifically priced items. So where it used to be other direct costs, now it's called order-level materials. Uh, So it's great that GSA came out with this clause. But there's always the other shoe waiting to drop. And this is the... Is it a big shoe? This is the... Well, this is the focus of Jason's article, and this is what gets contractors perplexed. GSA announced, to great fanfare and tremendous relief from the contractor community, that they had implemented this order-level materials rule. Well, (laughs) come to find out that GSA's internal systems aren't tuned up yet and aren't they aren't prepared to actually add order level materials to their schedule contracts right now. So you've got this clause, but it's a little bit like having a car that doesn't have the engine in it yet. (laughs) Okay. So GSA is you can look at the car and you know it's gonna run well once the engine gets in it. But until the engine doesn't, until the engine is in there and working, doesn't really have the intended. Can't get you from A to B. Uh, well, maybe and, GSA didn't specify which year buying <laughs> season this was going for. Well, I have confidence in them that they'll make it for the fourth quarter mark. Uh, I certainly hope that they will. Uh, but you've got to have your internal systems running uh, concomitantly with your uh, acquisition rules. So that when you have this uh, new feature, one that's been highly anticipated and is going to be extremely uh, in high demand, you want to be able to make sure that it can get rolled out at the same time. Uh, 
So the fourth quarter this year, generally speaking, is going to be uh, tremendous uh, in terms of the pace of business and the amount of business that gets run through not just GSA but all government contracts. Uh, this order level materials clause would be a key feature to put the schedules on a more even playing field with other IDIQ contracts. So I hope that they can actually get it up and running and get the engine in the car in oh, time. Yeah, it's a great idea, but I mean, does uh, uh, is, is there an impact from creating this new SIN for the uh, uh, OLMs? Is, is that a biggie? Oh, it is a biggie. Uh, it is a biggie because... It's, let's, it's, let's pick that up on the other side. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com, 1500 AM. Larry and I will be back right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Larry, pick up from uh, from where you were on, on that uh, sin for the OLMs, please. Right. Well, so we were talking into the break, Mark, about GSA's order-level materials uh, contract clause, and you were asking me if it was a big deal. And indeed, uh, it is a big deal. Uh, it's going to enable schedule contracts to better handle non-specifically priced items. What are we really talking about here. Well, we're talking here about things like uh, travel, things that are indirect costs to your uh, scheduled purchase order, but nevertheless are important to having that contract be uh, workable for you. In the world of contracts like TSA Alliant or Oasis or even uh, the NIH, a large services-based IDIQ contract, they have constructs for handling order level materials baked in to those contracts. The schedules program up until the advent of this clause have not had that capability. So that's been a, a factor in having customer agencies not want to use the schedule for things that require outside costs uh, that favors other contract vehicles. Uh, even when you've got a, a customer agency that wants to use the schedule, they've had to come up with a, a series of one-off, specialized uh, ways to address the order-level material issue. Uh, so that hasn't been neat and clean, and it's required some extra work. So now we have this new capability that really does even up uh, the schedules, at least in terms of uh, outside costs that are necessary to the execution of what can be complex contracts, uh, that's a good thing. It gives customer agencies more choice, makes the schedules program more viable. So uh, I'm all in support of it. Just GSA needs to get their internal systems up to speed uh, in short order so that now that the clause exists, it can actually be implemented. Okay. Um, well, you know, the, the other part of Jason's article that caught my attention was the uh, – uh, Smart Pay three uh, solicitation coming out, and and you know it's funny because I read that the same day I heard that Amazon is starting a bank, so <laughs> and and Amazon's going to be the big store, so I wonder if Amazon's going to go after Smart Pay three. <laughs> well, you know Amazon seems to be everywhere in government acquisition, Mark. Whether you're talking about a traditional e-commerce platform where they're they have some one-off deals signed with a couple of federal agencies and more reportedly in the works. Or you're talking about web services, with Amazon Web Services being one of the two largest providers of those services to the government. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if they uh, wanted to go after more types of government business. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I'm, 
the, the, you and I have been following the, the smart chart, smart pay card for for since it's since eighty nine. Yeah, right. Um, so um, it actually goes back to that pilot in commerce in eighty eight. So, but you know, who cares? Um, but I mean, you know, it's, we're talking about thirty billion dollars worth of traffic here. Right. The smart pay program, Mark, has been. Uh, a tremendous success in the government market. Uh, it's been well managed, and it's also been consistently managed inside GSA, uh, which is great. They do a, a good job of educating uh, buyers and line level people who aren't necessarily what you'd consider to be part of the traditional acquisition workforce. Yet they all have these purchase cards, and they do know how do have to know how to use them uh, appropriately. Uh, been a, a, a key factor in reducing acquisition times, reducing acquisition overhead, been a very good thing for small businesses because an agency can use a, a purchase card to make a small dollar purchase from a small business with very little, if any, uh, competition or And they've time. actually raised the limit recently. Well, they, they have. <clears throat> and so that's, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens. There are different limits the government has increased its micro-purchase threshold, uh, which a lot of these transactions, my, a lot of micro-purchases are paid for with the credit card. It's now $5,000 in the Department of Defense and $10,000 for all civilian agencies. You can do a lot of purchasing with a purchase card up to those dollar amounts. I know, yeah. um, I know my spouse could have some fun with that. So <laughs> Ben Carson could even buy a chair. <laughs> <laughs> Did I say that out loud? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> did you see that one? I did see that. And yeah. uh, $5,000 can't even buy you a good chair? Well, cool. I, Where the hell I, are you shopping? I've worked with a lot of uh, GSA furniture companies over my career, Mark, and I can tell you uh, with certainty that you can get an exceptionally good office chair from GSA schedules for less than 10% of that amount. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you can even get an air on. Or you can even get an air on, and I had one. And even if you have a, if the if the secretary has a bad back, that's a good way to go, and it, it, it's a fraction of the cost. <laughs> and and ergonomic chairs improve productivity. We know this, <laughs> so we're going to migrate. On. We'll leave those alone right now. Um, I want to touch uh, briefly, or maybe not briefly, on the non-award of CIO SP3 unrestricted. I've been getting a number of calls over the last few months saying, you know, have you heard anything? Do you know anything? We're afraid we're going to have to resubmit. So what, what's your take here? Well, Mark, it is a bit of a mystery. Is the, the awards for the unrestricted part of uh, this contract were expected months ago, uh, many months ago. If Last you look, summer. Right. If you look at the forecasts that uh, companies that watch for these things like Bloomberg Government and Deltec put out, everybody was expecting awards last summer uh, in concert or in rough timing with some of the GSA Alliance awards and with some of the at an Oasis small business on-ramp for GSA, and the awards from the NIH contract were supposed to be contemporaneous. Well, here we are in March, and that just hasn't happened yet. Uh, at the same time, trying to get information out of the NIH people at NITAC that manage these contracts has been very difficult for people to do pulling teeth from rhinos and, comes to mind. Yeah, and you know, you you started off uh, quite correctly saying, "Look, uh, the offers that have gone in for C 
CIOCS uh, are over a year old, and the pricing is over a year old. And as a contractor, you can only price protect the government for so long. Your pricing is only good for a certain amount of time. So I think it's a legitimate concern that companies might have to uh, resubmit and they might have to do another round of evaluations, which is a tremendous cost. I mean, some companies, Mark, will easily spend easily spend over five hundred thousand dollars in bid and proposal money to submit the original offer, and probably some close to seven figures. And when you look at that in a tight environment, especially when there are competing indefinite delivery and definite quantity vehicles. That's going to be a tough sell inside of a lot of contractor companies if they have to invest another substantial sum of money uh, because NIH couldn't get the contracts negotiated and awarded on time. Point. Enough on NITAC. <laughs> uh, it, it would be nice to, uh, to to see. I mean, we got the Small Biz Awards. Small for Business it. Awards came out within the last couple of weeks, so that's forward progress. Hope I don't know how well that augurs for the main one, but... Hopefully it's a it's a good omen. So. Yeah. So, but you know the the incumbents on the prior vehicle are happy. They are. Well, that's uh, you know that's the case too. Uh, really, uh, with any uh, indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity that's a follow-on to an existing contract, uh, there's a propensity for incumbents to lock up business uh, to some state in the in the future uh, uh, because it's the devil they know. Uh, it's the devil the customer knows, and it's easier to do business that way than to change tracks to something completely new. Uh, I think that's going to be particularly true, even in order the new awards to drop suddenly, Mark. I'm not sure how much business they would do this fiscal year because uh, it's a new vehicle. People are going to have to get trained on it. User agencies are going to have to get trained on it. I think it's much more likely that you would find business go through the existing contracts through the end of the fiscal year because uh, familiarity, if no other reason. There you go. Uh, we're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com at 1500 AM. We shall return right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com at 1500 AM. I'm here with Larry Allen. I'm not having any fun if you're listening to this. <laughs> I, Larry and I never have fun doing this. Uh, if you're not familiar with Larry's work, Allen Federal advises companies on all aspects of the contracting procurement process. I think I have that right. He's yeah. he's he's a uh, uh, an expert witness at, at various hearings. Uh, he, he, you know, he knows his stuff. You can find them at Allen Federal, A L L E N, AllenFederal.com. And you can find them uh, more often than not on my show um, and on LinkedIn. So, Larry, let's, let's talk about the, uh, um, the clarification of uh, size and status research from SBA. This, this has been a contentious issue for ever. It has. Uh, what constitutes a small business? How do we know uh, there are different size, status, uh, mar uh, measurements, depending on whether we're talking about a specific type of product or even another type of product or service? Uh, some are based on dollar amounts. Some are based on employee size. And so there's substantial amount of confusion. And also, Mark, anytime there's confusion – 
there's always an opportunity for people to game the system. Yeah. And Max I, Peterson once said, <laughs> where, where there's mystery, there's profit. That's, well, there's that. And that's, that's, that's very true here. One of the things that I found in my career is that companies, uh, even ones that are really good at what they do, if they're small, they have a propensity to want to hang on to that small business designation, even when that defies logic. And or law. Or law, or yes, in some cases, or law. And that ultimately gets them in trouble. Uh, so the, the advice that I give to businesses is, look, it's okay to be other than small, which in normal everyday conversation would be large. Uh, but in government, that's how they say it. Uh, own that. Uh, and if, if you have some opportunities where you're still considered a small business, depending on the type of work being done, that's fine. But don't become obsessed with your status. Rather be obsessed, if you're going to obsess, with the quality of the solution that you're delivering. And this really is what the SBA is trying to get at here, Mark, with this. Uh, that's the latest in a series of pronouncements coming from the Small Business Administration talking about size standards and how you determine whether or not a company uh, is small and when you get to say SBA is kind of, I think, swimming upstream on this, but nevertheless, it's a job that they have to do. They're trying to bring some order to this so that it's clearer to agencies that they're buying from actual small businesses uh, and, in turn, what that means for the government meeting its overall small business use goal, uh, which is also very important. Uh, I, so I, I, I give some kudos to the SBA for trying to clarify this. But uh, at some <clears throat> some level, it's not necessarily uh, going to be clarifiable. Yeah, I mean, it. It. I, I will also say this is a great effort, uh, and it looks like they got input from a variety of sources to come up with this because it, it doesn't look like it was something cooked up in a back room with a six pack. No, in fact, the previous projects I've worked on along these lines with the SBA, they have been very good at. Doing just what you said, getting diverse impact, taking time, not moving slowly, but taking the proper time to actually try to get things correct, realizing that you're never going to be able to make everyone happy. There's always going to be that small business somewhere that says, I make an extra buck 50 and now I'm no longer small. Well, the line has to be drawn somewhere. <laughs> and you know, it's kind of like paying your taxes. If you're at a certain income level, you get to pay the same percentage as somebody that makes a lot more than you. Yeah. That's just kind of the way that goes. <clears throat> yeah, it sucks. But it doesn't mean that <laughs> – right, it does It does indeed. But it doesn't mean that in this case that the SBA didn't make a, a reasonable effort to try to do the best they can. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to fish around for, you know, some of my uh, – Ed swabs and service disabled smalls and and maybe some a days and see if it makes sense. But the one thing I think they they addressed in here, correct me if I'm wrong, is the ability of a small business to hang on to a uh, uh, a piece of a larger contract um, after you know they're still winning business even if they outgrow the status during the course of the vehicle. Right. So if you're a small business, you know, you get to con continue working on the pieces of work that you're doing uh, until the 
contract ends. Uh, that's pretty standard uh, and consistent with other types of government contract clauses, Mark, that tell companies of any size that they have a certain amount of time to uh, do work on a contract, even in some cases if that contract has come to an end, you still have time to wrap up the work that you're doing, and it's a fairly lengthy time as well. So this SBA rule kind of makes uh, the ability for small businesses or formerly small businesses to continue to do that work uh, until uh, it, it wraps itself up, uh, which is great because it means you don't have to make a jarring transition from one side of the ledger <coughs> to the other. But again, my recommendation to contractors is, and you've seen it too, there are companies that uh, succeed because they have a small business designation and when they lose that designation, uh, they're adrift. And boy, you know, at some point, if you're a successful business, you're not going to be small anymore, and you need to plan for that transition. And there are companies that do that, uh, and and should <laughs> and should absolutely and right. And we've seen the downside of companies who don't. The downside for that is fairly well, severe. You know, yeah, I, I, I'm <laughs> I'm doing a guesstimate here, but I I would wager that 50 percent of the AAs don't plan for graduation. They don't plan for graduation, and so what does that mean? It means an awful lot of people lose their jobs. It means that sometimes people who want to cling to their designation when they really shouldn't end up getting uh, accused and have to defend themselves against fraud, which is extremely expensive, uh, regardless of how it comes out. So uh, a little ac little uh, planning for your business, just as you would hope the government would do good acquisition planning on its end. Cool. All right, so uh, let, let's migrate. There was a, uh, I get uh, a legal feed from JD Supra, uh, and I, I focus on just government contracting issues. And one of the things that uh, Morrison Forster wrote about was acquisition disruption, uh, innovative uh, concepts in government contracting. And uh, you took a look at the article too. So we're talking about uh, OTAs and other. I mean, there's always been other ways to do business. Right. So specifically, the big thing, particularly in DOD contracting, Mark, is other transaction authority. Uh, either goes by OTA or more recently OT. I guess having two letter letters is more trendy than three. Uh, but at its bottom line, as you intimated, OTA isn't new. It's been around for a while. What is new is that about two years ago, Congress gave the Department of Defense more authority uh, and encouraged them to use other transaction authority for a broader array of acquisitions. Up until that point, it had been something typically only used for prototypes, proof of concept, very limited pilots, uh, with an overwhelming influence uh, on small businesses, particularly non-traditional government contractors. Now... OTA uh, authority can be used even for follow-on work. So it's not just the pilot, but it could be the next stage. And it doesn't uh, have to be limited to small businesses. It still has to be uh, mission-oriented work. So uh, it's not something that you can decide to use for a non-mission critical need, uh, say, at the end of the fiscal year. But if it's uh, directly tied to the mission, the idea behind increased OTA use is to give the Department of Defense increased flexibility to uh, buy innovative solutions quickly and get them into the hands of warfighters and those who support the warfighter mission. 
Uh, so that's kind of neat. And we've seen an explosion in the use of OTAs uh, in the last six months. And it's gotten the attention not just of small businesses, but of some large traditional government contractors. And I, I expect that to continue. <clears throat> yeah. We and saw the, the the poster child was a recent award that was made to uh, a small business partner of Amazon Web Services for nine hundred and fifty million dollars in web service uh, support, cloud support. Uh, that recently, uh, Mark got, got a substantial down. haircut yeah. from nine hundred and fifty million <clears throat> all the way down to sixty five million. Uh, and then the scope limited to only one specific part of DOD that could use it. Uh, but still, $65 million uh, is a not insubstantial award. That's going to rank as one of the largest commercial item acquisitions uh, for the fiscal year. Yeah. And it's notable that uh, OTA was used for it, and there are going to be other examples uh, of how this is used. And that's part of the article that you, that you referenced uh, so I think if you're a, a, a contractor, you ought to be ready to talk a little bit about OTA to your DOD customer. If you're a DOD customer, you probably want to read up on some of the rules, uh, which there are some. Uh, defense, uh, you can read those at the Defense Procurement and Acquisition Policy website. For contractors, Mark, they want answers. How do I do this? Give me the roadmap. Well, there is no roadmap. There are directions, there are directives. You, too, as a contractor, can read the Defense Procurement and Acquisition Policy website where they have a compendium of guidelines on OTA, uh, and that's useful. But this is kind of a, a, a new way to use an old tool, yep. and any time you have that, Mark, uh, there's going to be more desire to use that tool than real specific knowledge about how it's best used. Yeah. Um, there were a number of other, uh, uh, by the way, uh, all of the things that I talk about on JD Super, I also tweet. So if you want to see the original pieces, uh, find me on Twitter at, at Amtower. I don't tweet, you know, 200 times a day. So if you just scroll back a week or so, you'll see these and a lot of other, uh, a lot of other articles referenced. Um, and that's primarily what I use Twitter for is to push out neat stuff that I find. Um, but do you want to talk about contests, contests, public, private, and broad agency announcements? Sure. So contests. Let's, let's, let's do that in a four segment. Um, you're listening to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Larry and I shall return right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Uh, Larry and I are here parsing all kinds of, uh, of legal tidbits coming out from SBA, from DOD, from GSA, uh, all over the place, and having absolutely no fun doing <laughs> it. Uh, so uh, other uh, innovative concepts, uh, contests. Um, Get contest. know, are we talking like Jeopardy or Wheel of Fortune? <laughs> or? Uh, contests are uh, somewhat more recent acquisition uh, initiative, Mark. They're not brand new. They've been around for at least a half a dozen years, at least. Uh, but contests are a, a way that agencies uh, use to uh, get an innovative solution. That's usually the goal, is to try and get something innovative 
maybe from a traditional contractor, but obviously they'd like to hear from non-traditional contractors as well. And the idea is, you know, kind of like the science fair in school. You know, you come up with uh, the neatest solution on how to solve a specific problem, and then the government will uh, either award you some business or you give them the solution that you came up with for the contest and you win. Uh, So you have to be a little bit careful in contests because your company can do an awful lot of work and try to validate uh, a need inside of of a federal agency. But how much you get paid or even whether you get paid for the work you're doing in a contest environment uh, is something you need to watch very carefully. Uh, Contests can be a cool way to uh, validate a process to get your company on the map uh, to do uh, government work. It can validate you as a a good supplier, one that understands at least some concepts of the federal market. Uh, But agencies sometimes use them to get solutions that they need but they can't always pay full price for. So uh, I urge a little bit of caution in that arena. Uh, But uh, if you go in with your eyes wide open and have a good business management plan on what it is you're trying to get and your agency customer has been somewhat specific about what their part of the bargain is going to be, uh, contests can be a kind of a fun way to do things. Okay. What about the public-private partnerships we've been hearing about again for a long while? A long time. And look, public-private partnerships get a lot of talk, and periodically they come around in the acquisition cycle, uh, and here they are again. So they're a good concept. I never see them as broadly adopted as some people would want them to be or as some senior uh, government professionals would like to see perhaps happen, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, and, And to be fair, they're not all on the government side of the ledger. You get uh, particularly larger companies that can have just as many rules and regulations about who they do business with and how uh, as the federal government mm-hmm. has. Uh, you and I have, I think, probably both experienced that in our careers, the <laughs> hoops one must go through. Uh, but any event, uh, a public-private partnership. Have you can... ever walked away from a <laughs> consulting gig because of that? I have, yeah. indeed. So and I. I put um... I put delineators now on... <clears throat> Uh, if, if I'm forced to learn somebody's billing uh, procedure, I charge them for it. And my hourly rate's now 480 bucks an hour. There you go. <laughs> You're catching up. Yes. So in any event, uh, public-private partnerships can be a, uh, a good way to solve a thorny issue that an agency has not been able to uh, address itself you bring in some private sector expertise. They sit down with your head shed people, and uh, you come up with a solution. Frequently, the company end of this, Mark, is going to be a, a nonprofit entity uh, for lots of reasons. One is nonprofit entities that focus in this area mm-hmm. like to do business uh, <coughs> as a public-private partnership. Uh, secondly, a lot of government agencies like the idea of doing business with the nonprofit. They have, in their mind, it's a somewhat cleaner concept than doing business with a, a for-profit contractor. Uh, usually, I see these apply to strategic level issues, like where is the agency going, or 
how are we going to really uh, implement a, the cloud-first policy that the administration told us we need to implement. So I don't tend to see public-private partnerships for things like telecommunication solutions or uh, a straight IT uh, play that involves a lot of product. But for what they're, they're used for, if you're in that uh, head shed space, in that federally funded research and development corporation space, then your public-private partnerships are a good way for you to do business. Okay. The last uh, uh, point that that this piece made was, uh, and I'm not familiar with this really, broad agency announcements. Well, broad agency announcements, I've heard of them before, Mark, and again, they're coming back up. And you want to know as an acquisition professional, regardless of whether you sit on the industry side or the government side, about all of the tools in your acquisition kit. And so we talk about contests, we talk about OTA and partnerships. One of the other tools in the toolkit is broad agency announcements, and they're for a very specific type of government acquisition. Typically, you see broad agency announcements used in scientific or technical situations where the government has a thorny scientific or technical issue, maybe one, typically one, for which a readily identifiable commercial source uh, is not available. One where the government probably wants to ultimately have ownership of what other technical or scientific solution uh, comes out uh, of the work. But they're used by agencies to communicate research interests. And again, this can be for for-profit or nonprofit companies. Uh, but you're going to have to, on the company side, uh, really possess that specialized technical or scientific expertise that the agencies actually use <clears throat> looking for, and not not they're just not limited to scientific and technical work. Mark, typically the agencies that engage in broad agency announcements are limited to a handful of government uh, operations, like the Department of Defense, uh, transportation. Uh, not surprisingly, you see DARPA in there. Uh, even the Agency for International Development, perhaps the Food and Drug Administration, looking for ways to uh, meet specific scientific uh, needs. Uh, so if you're in that area or if you're an acquisition professional that in the government that gets presented with uh, a question by your uh, program manager people, look, we have this issue. How do we acquire the solution or the expertise we need? Broad agency announcements could be a good way to pursue that. Yeah, cool. Um, if you're listening on the radio, uh, go to federalnewsradio.com uh, and look up Amtower because Larry and I are got a couple more things to talk about. But if you're on the radio, uh, we're wrapping up right now. Um, Larry, again, you know, thanks always for coming in. Again, you can find Larry at Allen A L L E N Federal dot com. Find him on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, you can find me on LinkedIn or at federaldirect.net, uh, and I suggest you do so. Um, you know, if you need help on the contracting side, Larry's your guy. If you need help on the marketing side, or especially LinkedIn, that's where about 80% of my consulting has been over the last two years is coaching uh, sales, marketing, and BD teams on leveraging LinkedIn 
to uh, to grow your business, particularly ABM and social selling. So um, thanks for listening to the radio. Tune in to federalnewsradio.com to pick up the rest of this interview. All right, Larry, we're back on the air. So um, <clears throat> let's talk about the uh, the NAICS codes assignments um, <clears throat> for for content. This this is an issue that you and I've been monitoring, uh, not together but separately for you know literally decades. I remember when the Commerce Business Daily, the the publication <laughs> that was mailed to you. You know, used to, sheets. Yeah, <laughs> used to hide the IT stuff like in the kitchen department. Right. Uh, you know, it was just weird, but it, it was intentional. So um, so there's been a review of this. Were you involved in the review at all? Uh, I was, Mark. Uh, the Government Accountability Office was asked to conduct a study on NAICS code use uh, by Congress, uh, the idea was our government contracting officers cherry-picking NAICS codes. Are there is there NAICS code shopping? And what we're really talking about here is how do we classify things first uh, for small businesses and then second within that small business universe, specific slices of the small business market to get to the companies or frequently company that – we, the government agency, would like to use. Right. So you're, you're selecting NAICS codes predicated on the ability to eliminate large numbers that, of companies. That's exactly right. <clears throat> Gee, what a shock. <laughs> it's, it's, it's one way that uh, agencies can narrow the field of uh, uh, responses to their RFP that they get in. It's one way actually to send a signal uh, to industry that, look, we have a couple of people in mind or a company in mind, and that's the way we want to go. Thank you for your time and interest. Uh, and also on the company side, uh, there are a number of companies that uh, will actively promote NAICS code shopping to their government customers as a way to move the acquisition process along, get that need fulfilled. So agencies or uh, contractors, rather, are very proactive in terms of trying to identify NAICS codes that give their customer agencies that extra ability to reach them easily. And this was really the focus of the GAO study. And GAO, to nobody's surprise, said, yes, NAICS code shopping does occur in government acquisition. You know, gambling at Rick's, I'm shocked. <laughs> That's right. Um, <clears throat> and if you don't understand that, boy... Your, your film education is shy. Well, so my reaction to this, I mean, we were happy. I was happy to talk to the Government Accountability Office and share my experience and what I know about this. And as you pointed out at the introduction to this segment, Mark, NAICS code shopping is nothing new. GAO does a nice job of calling it out in this report and identifying it. My response is, okay, what happens next? Yeah. Because... Even the people that did the GAO report acknowledge that contracting officers do have wide discretion, and we want them generally to have wide discretion in making business decisions. So it's tough to challenge a, a contracting officer's decision to use a certain NAICS code. Uh, tough to challenge because on one hand, they have contracting officers have a lot of authority to decide uh, which one they want to use. So even if they select one that you don't like, 
unless there's an obvious violation of federal law or regulation, you're not likely to win a protest. Secondly, you're a small business in all likelihood, because this is where this really comes in. And a lot of small businesses just don't have the extra 35 or 50 grand it takes to file a GAO protest to get this type of issue addressed. So uh, what really comes next? Uh, New rules, new regulations? Uh, On one hand, maybe that could address some of the more egregious cases. On the other hand, it does limit uh, to some degree uh, contracting officer flexibility. And as I've had one uh, former Hill staffer tell me that by definition, legislative approaches to policy issues are a kind of meat axe approach. That is, they are not neat and clean. So there's collateral damage if you want Congress to address this issue uh, that would be unintended. Uh, so in that way, you'd have to look at uh, and balance any potential cure against just really how severe is the could disease. You, could you correct this with far action? Uh, potentially, this could become a, a FAR case where the FAR Council could get involved and issue uh, regulatory guidance uh, that uh, talks about uh, and maybe codifies some specific steps that contracting officers have to take to uh, justify their NAICS code uh, designation. Uh, that's certainly possible. Uh now, far cases can take a couple of years, but that doesn't mean that they're not worthy undertakings. Sure. Well, so, I mean, I I don't want any major changes to occur like in seven hours. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I think the, the, the real immediate impact of the GAO report, Mark, is that uh, if you're a, a newer market entry uh, or perhaps hadn't been paying attention to this part of the government market, this report definitely tells you that NAICS code shopping does happen. Uh, It does tell you that if it's uh, particularly unsupportable by law or regulation, that there are ways for you to challenge that uh, designation by the contracting officer. Uh, But it also says that uh, within existing rules and regulations, there are really some limited remedies here. Okay. All right, so uh, I want to point out that uh, this was a, uh, a post from J.D. Super from Pilaro Maza, and I, I want to thank uh, Super and Maza for that. There's one more I want to talk about before we wrap up, and this one comes uh, It's a post from William Smullen. And uh, when, when deal-making and government consent merge, the who, what, where, when, and why of novation agreement. So, you know, why do companies buy companies? You know, so like uh, I advised CDW back in the uh, the mid-2000s, uh, I think starting around 2003 or so, and we missed one of the uh, soup things because, um, well, was – uh, an, an internal personnel issue. We'll let, let it go with that. Uh, I don't want to get actionable here. Um, <laughs> right. But um, so we went out and bought a company that had soup. Right. And for CDW, you know, IT sales, hmm, soup, hmm. Uh, yeah. There's a fit. Um, so, right. <laughs> uh, but, but there, you know, it, it's a deep issue. And, and a lot of companies do buy their way into contracts and into agencies. They do indeed, Mark. In fact, I've advised some of my clients over the course of my career, if you want to achieve the type of market growth that you're talking about, uh, the only real way to hit those numbers sometimes is via an acquisition. 
novation agreements aren't really well understood. And I found in my uh, experience, Mark, that a lot of government contractors are hesitant to uh, start a, no- a novation action, even when it's indicated. And a lot of government contractors, or a lot of government contracting officers, however, are really reluctant to manage a novation process because they've got to get legal involved inside their agency. It takes a while. They've got five million other things they want to do. And yet, the FAR is very clear about when a novation agreement should happen. Simply put, if you're a company that owns a government contract today and your con- your company is bought so that either the assets, all the assets of your company or the assets of that part of your company that is responsible for, for performing that government contract are purchased and you no longer have control over them, it's clear that you have to do a novation agreement. You have to get your the purchasing company, the one that bought your assets, is the one that has to take the lead on that action. Novations are not automatic, which is another reason why some people are hesitant to enter into them. Yet, there's a real downside risk to not doing a novation agreement when you should, Mark. And that is typically comes from your competitors. If, you're, if you've been sold and the assets of your company that were performing the government contract are now owned by some other entity, some other legal entity, <clears throat> chances are that one of your competitors is going to know about that. And maybe they're going to take an issue that you're still performing on the contract even though you no longer have control of it. It's really the new parent company that's performing on the contract. If they challenge that issue with the contracting officer, you could lose that piece of business, which likely, Mark, could be the very piece of business that caused you to be bought in the first place. Right. And that could torpedo the whole business deal that you made to get your company or that part of it sold. So really, uh, while there is some cost and risk associated with uh, pursuing an ovation agreement, the risk of not doing one when you need to is potentially much, much larger. It could unravel the entire purchase of your company, and you don't want that to happen. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, you get a deal like GDIT buying CSRA, <laughs> and, uh, you know, how many contracts did CSRA have, and, and had they finished swallowing their their buy of two years ago? Uh, <laughs> well, the answer to that's no, so... <clears throat> Uh, we know that you know, the good news for companies like CSRA and GDIT is they have a legion of inside and outside lawyers who've done novation agreements before, and they and can do them and, in and their can sleep. do them and know the drill. And uh, you know, it's gotten a lot. That particular buy got a lot. It's gotten a lot of attention, so that uh, it's kind of obvious that you need to do some. And your contracting officer might even come knocking on the door, asking when they're going to see the paperwork. Uh, but this comes into play even for smaller contracts. I've worked with companies uh, over the years that uh, are commercial item companies that get purchased, uh, and they uh, have to do novation agreements. Similarly, I've worked with the companies that have done the buying uh, for a government contractor, and they've had to manage the novation agreements. You're not entering new territory, Mark. I want to emphasize that while it's a process it's a process that 
thousands of companies have gone through before you. And yes, it can create a little extra work for your company and it can create a little extra work for your government contracting officer. <clears throat> However, you absolutely need to do this. Not only could one of your competitors come in and challenge your ability to continue doing work, but strictly speaking, a different legal entity than the one that was awarded the contract is now being paid to do the work. Well, that's a violation of all kinds of rules. Uh, the most uh, prominent of one is the Anti-Assignment Act, and you get into the whole federal assignment uh, of claims, uh, litigation, and regulation. And presumably, if you are doing work or the parent company is billing for work that's being done, you would all like to get paid for that. Uh, a novation agreement assures that you will do that. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Larry, we're, we're wrapping up here, man. Uh, again, thanks for coming in. Always a blast. Um, and do you get the JD Super newsletter? I do not, but now okay. I well, want to take a look at it I'll, now that I'll you've forward mentioned you, it. Uh, I, I get it every day. So I'll forward you today's and you can, you know, sign up for it because it, it really, you know, it, it takes you into a variety of law firms specializing in government contracting directly to their blogs or articles and stuff. That's great. It's yeah, it's it's a great daily feed. And again, you know, I I I will not pretend to understand a lot of the legal aspects, but it's important enough for me to tweet out and um, it's important information for the community to know about. Well, Mark, as I always say, uh, the government can do things for you. The government can do things to you. Looking at things on the compliance angle is a way to try to prevent things that could happen to you that are negative. Yep. Uh, so it's worth a little investment of your time if you're a government contractor. There you go. Larry, again, Larry Allen, Allen Federal, A-L-L-E-N, federal.com. Uh, look him up, connect with him on LinkedIn, or reach out to him on LinkedIn. He may connect, he may not. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I'm Mark Amtower. Look me up on LinkedIn. Easy to find. Thank you very much for listening to the longer version of Amtower Off Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off Center, sponsored by General Dynamics Information Technology. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. Amtower Off Center, only on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com.